Okay, now we're live, guys. How are you? Good. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for asking. Govin, uh, I'm going to go one by one. So how's, how's it going? How's life going with you, Govin? Uh, life's going good. I'm uh, out in Washington, D.C., and it's been a while since we did some of these podcasts. Uh, so it's good to be back into this. Yeah, awesome. So, yeah, it's been a long while. And um, we have some exciting stuff later on in, in, in a few months, too, that is going to be out. Or maybe even sooner. We'll see. But we'll just keep it at that. It's going to be a secret for now. Uh, how about you, Dave? Deep? How's it going? Uh, really good, man. I'm enjoying the fact that the weather's getting better. I'm out in Toronto uh, for, for the time being. Um, and yeah, I kind of just like the um, opportunity to reflect and stay indoors. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, so it's a good idea to probably stay indoors, although it's a very nice weather. It's a little bit cold, but it's very sunny here in Toronto. Um, country. I don't know. How's the weather in there, uh, Govin, in Washington? Oh, well, it's, it's, it's better than Toronto to start, but it's also uh, uh, warmer now and the trees are blooming again because I oh, think yeah, everyone's nice. used to thinking it's spring. So, you know, you know how weather is. Weather is fractal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, why don't you tell us why you mentioned fractals right now? Oh, uh, well, because you told me, hey, let's talk about fractals in a podcast. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually literally why this is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is what this is. But um, <laughs> apart from that, well, weather itself is composed of many tiny micro processes that have an emergent macro phenomena, right? Which is what weather mm -hmm. is. And the micro phenomena is like how, uh, how gases move with, against each other, uh, like, uh, like in the atmosphere and uh, pressure differentials that happen due to various like micro conditions, like uh, maybe something gets moved, you know, and then there's something em that emerges out of it, which is, which is what climate is. Um, so that's kind of really the theme of what fractals are. Uh, fractals are something that have, uh, that are composed of many self-similar pieces. Um, so there's, there's like a large thing, like you can even think of it like a square, like a square is self-similar because if you cut up a square into four tiny squares, you have uh, each of those squares are just uh, a quarter of the size of the actual square. Uh, but then you can, you can extend that to something like a cube, uh, which is like, you can cut up a square, a, a cube into like uh, four tinier cubes, each of which is an eighth of the size of the original cube, right? So yeah. you can also extend this to something like a, uh, a, a weird funky curve, you know, like uh, the, coast of, the coast of Britain. Uh, there is a factor by which you can reduce the, the size of the coast of England and end up with some self-similar uh, replicas of the coast of England within the coast of England itself. And that's what's called the fractal dimension. Wow, that's very interesting. And I always have been fascinated by fractals which you basically give a, a broad definition of what they are. And we're going to talk about them, not just them, but we'll get to a little bit uh, depth and details of these things. Uh, right. So, so I'm going to ask deep. So what deep, where was the, do you remember the first time you came across these fractals? Um, fractals like as like, uh, as general. Yeah. As a concept. Yes. So I would say I was in either grade eight or grade nine. Okay, you were early bloomer. I was. It was a little bit. <laughs> was sure. a little bit it was a little bit later. Later uh, for me. Uh, it, it's not like I understood the deepest mathematical aspects, but I knew what they were. Uh, I loved them. So, like a quick, um, like ten second background. I was like a 
I, I don't know, I was a huge user of the internet, like from an early age. I'm sure both of you were too. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Same with Grove. Like, that's out of the question. So, um, so yeah. But I so I, apart from playing a lot of RuneScape, I used to troll around on physics forums a lot. Like uh, around like grade seven, um, I got really obsessed with it, and through that, like these uh, researches, just reading people's um, thoughts. Eventually, I came across fractals. So that was around grade eight or grade nine. It's amazing. Now, for people who are like, well, what the fuck are these guys talking about? Why is it so beautiful or amazing or whatever? We're going to just definitely put these in the show notes. Just go look at us on pictures, Google it yourself, whatever is more accessible to you. But there is some beauty in these. And um, the fact that we perceive them as beautiful, it could actually be, uh, has, uh, have some meaning behind it. I don't know. Have, you, have any of you thought about that? Why do we think of these things as kind of like beautiful or mesmerizing? Which I do, and I know a lot of you do. Well, um, I can start that one off because um, I think just the hyper-fine structure and symmetry of it is, is almost incomprehensible, right? There's like no matter where you look in a, in a fractal, like a, uh, a, a canonical fractal is the Mandelbrot set, which I'm sure we can include that in the show notes. Uh, if you look at it and you stare into it, uh, there's even some videos on YouTube of, uh, of like zooms into the Mandelbrot set. Mm. It's just no matter where you see, there's just like these hyper-structural patterns that are just so symmetric and so perfect that it's it's like hard to comprehend something like that could exist, right? I think I think that's what makes it seem so beautiful. In yeah. fact, uh, well, to answer your earlier question of where you uh, encountered uh, fractals right. first, I mean, you asked it to deep, but um, I, I was raised as a Hindu, uh, and my my mom always used to draw these little pattern things out of flowers, uh, out of rice flour or wheat flour, or whatever, and. Uh, this is like a big thing in, in Hindu culture. And I'm sure it is in other cultures too, right? Like you just have fractals ingrained within us as something that's beautiful. Yeah, very interesting. Actually, that's true. Um, it, it, if you look at culturally, you can see these patterns emerging in a lot of cultures as an active component of, I don't know, symbology or whatever. Um, now let's get a little bit deeper. So uh, about, I don't, I want to say about two years ago or one and a half, or maybe one. I, anyways, somewhere between one to two years ago, you came to me with the notion of these uh, fractals and uh, you, you were working on something specific and you mentioned that yeah, I'm doing this. Do you want <clears throat> to jump in? We're, well, Deep is going to jump in. I was like, well, that's actually quite interesting. Do you want to uh, tell us a backstory of what that whole thing was and how you came to contact with it? Yeah, for sure. That was the uh, Mandelbrot set again. Uh, a little bit of foreshadowing earlier. Um, <laughs> and the project was to do machine learning on the on the Mandelbrot set and see if we could use something like, say, a neural network uh, to learn the layers, to learn the different uh, resolutions of a Mandelbrot set and see if you can actually predict what a Mandelbrot set uh, zoomed in is going to look like based on the training data. Um, I thought that would be super fascinating just because we can, that gives us more insight into something that's not really well understood in, in mathematics, which is fractals, right? Um, especially the Mandelbrot set. Uh, it's a class of functions known as uh, iterative functions. And um, those produce very strange behavior uh, because, uh, well, for, for one, the Mandelbrot set is just composed of the rule uh, x squared plus c uh, in the complex domain uh, without wanting to get too technical and in the weeds. Uh, it's a pretty simple equation that generates something just so chaotic. 
which is a common theme in, in both in mathematics and even in computer science where something very simple, like a very simple rule can create something so complex, like infinitely complex even. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And, uh, and then we jumped in, we started working on, on, on some aspects of this, this project. We were uh, uh, struggling with so many, so much details that are redundant here, but for the, for the, for the fun of it, we, we had trouble computing um, large amount of uh, basically large resolutions. So when you were trying to compute large subset of these numbers, it was becoming very time consuming. And we had a lot of those challenges, which, were, which was fun, very rigorous. And, um, and uh, just, just mentioning that as, as uh, somebody who's not, if, if you're listening and you're not familiar with these, there's like a lot of heartache and headache and sweat goes into these things just for the appreciation part of it. But eventually uh, they, 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 the, the beauty emerges and that's where you're rewarded and you're like, ah, it's totally worth my time. Um, and uh, that's, that's how I look at it at least. Now, okay, so at the beginning, we, we started generating these. So, so uh, uh, deep, so I'm, I'm going to go to the application a little bit. Um, each of you had some aspect of how you can apply. As, so the question is, why do we even care, right? Why are they important? So each of you had an ap application uh, in the real world for these, uh, for these um, patterns. Now, I'm going to start with you, Dave. You, you had something, I think, in, uh, in Fluid Dynamics? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, with fluid dynamics, there's actually different applications um, that we can use fractals for. Um, my favorite one is more of like, it's more of a meta statement of how we can use fractals in physics in general. So not just fluid dynamics, but other kinds, um, which is the idea of taking the very strict approach that if we are to study the universe and the physicality of the universe, then, then the um, rules are the same no matter where you look. So it's just a matter of knowing where you are in that fractal layer, right? The depth, that infinite recursion, knowing where you are in there is the, the, the question that we're trying to solve at any given time. So um, one example that I'll give to you is that consider the common problem of classical physics and quantum physics that are always brought up, how the world, when we zoom away and we aren't looking at each individual particle, it follows this classical rule, right? All these different subsets of classical physics instead. Um, and, but when you zoom in enough and you zoom into the universe's fractal, real life fractal, you see that different rules apply. Quantum mechanics applies instead. So I, I like the idea when we take the fluid dynamics example of um, applying the fractal mentality to whatever object it is that we're modeling. So, um, earlier, I brought up an example when we were discussing offline of the plane where different parts of the plane are experiencing different physics that we're interested in modeling at the surface layer, at the boundary layer, which is the sub couple millimeters thin layer um, at the surface of the craft. And it forms when you're at hypersonic speed, so five times the speed of sound, when you're traveling at that layer or more. So it it's a place where... Eventually, air goes from uh, very still and calm and fluids and gases to extremely turbulent. Um, and in doing so, you have all this chemistry that you want to predict. Like, how will the change in the temperature of the air here and the chemistry of the actual um, atmosphere uh, affect the, let's say, the paint or the heat of the craft um, at the surface layer? But then if you 
back up and you want to look at the physics of the shock waves, which is around the craft instead, that's following slightly different physics. We're not interested in the chemistry anymore. Yet, when you take a step back further and look at the whole plane, it is just one system that we are that is just uh, unique and unified that we're interested in. So it makes sense to apply fractal theory in that respect. Um, yeah. Cool. And uh, so, uh, uh, Govind, you had some application in uh, cryptography, I believe. Yeah, it was cryptography, but um, well, uh, okay. So in the in cryptography, there's the idea of private and public key pairs. Uh, so there's uh, there one idea that seems interesting to me, uh, which I think has been explored in academic uh, literature, albeit not that much, is uh, being able to use different use the scale invariant properties of fractals to generate uh, uh, generate a key pair, where uh, your scale for those of you that are familiar with uh, private and public keys and uh, encryption using those, uh, or rather unfamiliar. Um, a public key is what is presented to the world. So you can lock up your, uh, your data or your information that is secret uh, using your public key. Uh, that is uh, your, your private key. And then uh, that can be used uh, uh, against your public key to generate, to regain that information. So think of it as like a lockbox where you lock it with one of the keys and the other key can open it again. Uh, so uh, typically this is done using, uh, uh, using large prime numbers, uh, for, uh, like RSA, RSA encryption. Uh, but using fractals, the idea is that you can, um, you can encode the, uh, like say one part of the, um, uh, a fractal. Like, uh, if you're thinking of the Mandelbrot set, you can think of the big bulb of the Mandelbrot set, uh, and you can encode your information with that. And then you can transform your scale to find another one of the big bulbs within the Mandelbrot set, which we know is possible, right? And then that's the transformation that you use to get to that point would be your private key. Um, well, yeah, this is getting like pretty complicated, but. <laughs> no, it's good. It's supposed to be easy, is it? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm happy. First of all, I'm happy that I'm complicated, but no. Yeah, uh, all the easy stuff has been done, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but, but it will also include some like, people who are just listening to this. We will include more uh, detailed stuff in the show notes. So what uh, Govin is basically explaining with some graphs or, or uh, explanation will make more sense to you. So continue, please. Yeah, and uh, I also wanted to talk about a, a less uh, complicated, well, still pretty complicated uh, application, which is the stock market. Uh, well, uh, the idea of using fractals in the stock market is by no means new. In fact, uh, Benoit Mandelbrot, the namesake of the Mandelbrot set that has been repeated ad nauseum <laughs> in this podcast, <laughs> Uh, is uh, is famously like one of the notable things he did was uh, try to predict uh, the fractal dimension of uh, various uh, indices in the stock market. Um, this is a technique that's still used and widely studied in uh, in in modern uh, mathematical finance. You, so that's that's definitely a very uh, you know uh, out there application of fractals. Right. You mentioned before uh, briefly the fractal dimension, but can you reiterate what that is? Yeah, for sure. So just how uh, if you are able to, if you take a square and you're able to cut it up into four pieces and each of those four pieces is still a square, right? It's mm -hmm. a square, but like it's a scaled down version of a square. It's like magnified a little. It's like mm -hmm. uh, a quarter of the size, right? 
so if you uh, you can abstract that concept to uh, a cube, but then yeah. you can also take that to like the jagged co uh, coast of of the United Kingdom, right? Like this this right. sounds like it's coming out of left field, but just just think about it. Like uh, the the coast of the United Kingdom is like a bunch of squiggles. It's a lot of squiggles. So if you take that and then you you try to find some little tiny squiggle within that big squiggle that resembles the bigger squiggle a lot. It is basically a scaled down version of the bigger squiggle. Right. Like the smaller cubes and the bigger cube, basically. Yeah, exactly. And this that's, is... that's the analogy. Right. But this... so mm -hmm. where in for squares, it's uh, two dimensions for cubes. It's like three dimensions. Mm -hmm. uh, you can, you can have like uh, weird, like, uh, like rational number dimensions where you have like two thirds of a dimension, like a 1.6 dimension. So that's the real um, intuition behind fractals to fully understand it is the fact that it's, you're not working with like dimensions that are easy anymore. You're working with dimensions that are just weird, completely weird. Right. So how does the non uh, natural number perfection uh, dimensions work? Like 1.6. So it's it's exactly what I what I explained earlier. Um, so maybe in the show notes we can include the actual okay. definition of a fractal dimension, which okay. is uh, the the number of self-similar pieces within the uh, within the curve or the object. So again, in a square, uh, you can you can cut up a square into uh, four pieces, and then the number of self-similar pieces is four, and then you can divide it by the magnification factor, which is which is a quarter. Uh, so, oh, I see. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, Got so it. that's that's literally how you get it. Uh, cool. and, but in, you use the log, uh, you, you have to use the log function. So it's the log of the number of, uh, self-similar pieces divided by the log of the magnification factor. If you're being precise. Yeah. Yeah. No, I got it. Okay. So, um, so you were mentioning, so these are useful also in, um, so when you mention um, markets, so are you talking about predicting the markets? Yes, exactly. Uh, to give you a little bit of an ex explanation of how this could work. Uh, if you see the stock market curve, uh, maybe in the show notes, we can put the uh, Bitcoin curve because it's, uh, it's very easy to see these kind of uh, self-similar shapes. Okay. You can see uh, how there's like a huge peak and then it goes down and then there's a huge peak again and then it goes down. So intuitively, it is kind of self-similar, right? There are, there are these chunks where, you, like again, if you think of it as a big squiggle, there's a tiny squiggle where it goes all the way up and then it goes down. Right. It's like it's kind of like a sine wave. It's like a, it's like a curve that goes and it reaches itself again. So it's kind of self-similar in a sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. Would, you, would you agree with that? No, of like, course. Yeah. Yeah. So you, the idea is that you would use the point where it seems to um, match like one of the ends of the, the curve. And then you can say, OK, uh, based on my fractal model of the stock market, it looks like it's going to repeat at this point. Mm -hmm. And then you can, you know, make your investment uh, based on that decision. Right. And the, the, the rationale is that, so, the, so I don't know if we discussed the, the model that our project is creating, the machine learning model on the, when we were online or offline, but did we mention it online? Uh, I'm not quite sure, actually. Okay, let's reiterate. No matter what. <laughs> let's go for it. Okay, so, so what are we doing in our project, basically? Can you? So uh, our project is to better understand the Mandelbrot set and how we can apply it for, uh, for use cases such as, uh, uh, I, I think the, the basic first step is to actually just see what happens. Can we actually predict layers of the Mandelbrot set? Right, is yeah. it that simple? 
uh, or is it going to get hairy? Is something like, uh, is the best AI that we have currently not able to uh, learn the Mandelbrot set or mm -hmm. like fractals in general? You know, I think. Uh, what, what is your guess? If you had to take a guess, yes or no? Uh, you, can, well, you can explain why briefly, but I want a yes or no. <laughs> my, my disclaimer is I'm not sure, of course, but okay, yeah. uh, I want to say no. Because so it can't uh, predict, that's what you're saying? Yeah, okay. just because it's so computationally intensive um, that I think there's something deeper mathematically hidden within these, these curves that uh, simple statistics will not be able to help us get there. Okay, what do you think, Deep? Same question. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. I think what we'll see if we're lucky is some kind of like quasi, you know, like a five-year-old trying to recreate a drawing of a dinosaur. Like we might get something of that kind, but to truly capture the underlying mathematics, our current um, regime of machine learning is just not there yet. Okay, fair enough. Now, uh, uh, I just want to say, if, I, if I'm wrong, hey, like I think that'll be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really... That in itself is a good discovery. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to be rooting for you to be wrong, honestly. Um, so, so don't worry about it <laughs> if you're wrong. Uh, no, but um, uh, so as we're, so basically as, so if we do train some AI that looks at these, uh, these layers and tries to predict them and say they're successful now, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, how do we, so it seems that if you're able to predict the, um, the, the, the market, the economical market, you should be able to predict any, uh, anything else with any kind of uh, self-replication or self-similarity. Would you agree with that? Yeah, because, uh, well, if we do predict the stock market successfully, well, apart from being insanely rich, <laughs> we'll also <laughs> have uh, predicted human behavior because that's kind of the underlying, uh, you know, that's, that's how the stock market works, right? Like that's how economic models work mainly. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you... Uh, actually, a couple of nature, too. We, we get a two-for-one deal. That's all I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I was going to ask you further. Do you have any other similar applications in your mind? Does it, like, stop for you there? Or do you... I'm talking to Deep, actually. Like, uh, like are, are, do, you, do you think it, it has potential to go further in terms of what you can predict with these things? Do you have any examples? Yeah, so one thing that... and again, it's maybe less so about predictability, but we'll see, is uh, let's go back to quickly uh, quantum mechanics and the okay. fundamentals. Um, so, we, let's, so when we look at a system and we want to define the measurables uh, of the system, what we're really saying is that this system has these kinds of measurements we can make, and these are the finite values that you can uh, measure the system to be in and that's all defined in the wave function right it's all encoded in there and so you'll never in theory measure anything outside of that wave function the wave function is supposed to contain everything about uh, a system and the measurements you can make mm -hmm. so if you wanted um, but then if you dig a little bit deeper you see that the actual definition uh, of a measurable is that um, the value maps to the eigenvalue which maps to the eigenvector of the Hermitian operator, which is acting on a quantum state. So let's say that I have some sort of uh, qubit superposition or some sort of system, forget qubit, any system, physical system that's in a quantum superposition and I want to make a measurement on it. Um, the way that I would define the state of that system is using Dirac notation. It would be a vector uh, in, a, in a Hilbert space. 
Um, sometimes it's finite dimensional, sometimes it's infinite dimensional, and there are different kinds of. Can you super quickly explain what a Hilbert space is? The Hilbert space is, uh, think of it as a generalized Euclidean space. So it's supposed to represent uh, more abstract vectors like complex vectors, while, it, while also defining certain functions that the normal Euclidean space does not. Uh, I believe that includes the inner product. Um, mm -hmm. There's a specific kind uh, that you can do in quantum mechanics. So beyond that, the, uh, yeah, the whole idea, though, is to keep that idea of... Um, conserve that concept of Euclidean spaces just at much higher dimensions. Because keep in mind, we're representing quantum states in those dimensions where your, uh, your actual vector is represented by a complex number, or it can be, like your, the elements of your vector. So, <clears throat> and so the more, um, let's say, entangled systems you have, the higher dimension Hilbert space you're dealing with. So in the quantum computing regime, if you take, let's say, three qubits uh, and you entangle them, then you're dealing with a Hilbert space that's two to the three or eight dimensions large, and so on and so forth. So, uh, so yeah. D does that make sense, though? Like, the Hilbert space is really just a fancy Euclidean space. Oh, of course, space. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Awesome. Yeah, continue. <laughs> Great. So, so and oh, also one thing about the Hilbert space is that it lets you using the vectors, you can represent superpositions, which mm -hmm. is insane, right? That's what we really care about. And so um, we, so going back to the system that we haven't measured yet, uh, it would be represented by this um, state function or this vector in the Hilbert space, right? Let's say it's in a superposition and the vector accurately reflects that. Then the um, measurements, the possible values that we can measure in that system depends solely on the operator, uh, the measurement operator that we're applying to that quantum state. Mm -hmm. So if we apply, let's say, a position operator where we want to measure the position, what it's going to do is it's going to apply that operator to the quantum state and map all the possible states of that uh, quantum state to the possible eigenstates that consist of that um, operator that we just applied it to. So that's how you're able to kind of force these values, right, um, uh, of like measurement and, and all that stuff. And, you know, you're constantly doing this mapping. Like you either did a unitary action, which means you didn't disturb or make a measurement uh, to the system, or you did a measurement action. Um, now, why is that related to fractal theory? Like why am I rambling about the, these specifics? <laughs> it's because of the 10 martini problem. Um, and so the 10 martini problem is looking at addressing uh, qu um, quantum mechanics and operator logic and the spectrum of observables and all the mathematics that goes into that, right? So now, rather than having a finite number of observables, what happens if you have a continuous model? So what they deal with, uh, one thing that Tan Martini looks at is the application of fractal theory uh, applied to this, um, the problems that we come up with and we find in, in measurement, uh, like quantum measurement and operator theory and operator logic. Right, right. right. And for, for those who are not familiar with the Martini problem, can you quickly give a gist of it? So I'm going to uh, divert that to Govin since okay. uh, yeah, yeah he, he was the one who had sent it to me. But I have my own interpretation for what it's worth. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so okay. Govin, give a, give a brief uh, uh, on the paper uh, uh, description of what it is, and then deep you can interpret all you want. I have to confess, I I don't fully remember the, the Tan Martini okay. problem. 
All right. Um, so we'll, we'll put it in the show notes if, if, you, if you don't remember it. Yeah, 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 we can. Um, so all, all I wanted to say about it was that uh-huh. it's the fact that, like, um, formerly it was the spectrum of the Matthew. I can never pronounce his name, but like Matthew operator, uh, they found that it's a Cantor set for all non-zero values, right? Mm-hmm. For all these, uh, the coupling of all r- irrational frequencies. Mm-hmm. That's like the formal definition. Um, what they found, and I think it's like, that's why I uh, diverted to Govin because of the whole idea of the Cantor set showing up. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, I think what we should do is, it, it's almost worth talking about in a different podcast, but let's okay. just low notes for now. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't want to like confuse okay. people yeah. with like a, like you know, like we need to be super rigorous in what we're saying. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. No, I know. Okay, so we 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 actually do have plans to do another in-depth podcast, so we can mention the details of the ten mountaining problem there. Exactly. But that would be the perfect place to do it because like yeah. we're we're literally getting into the deepest parts of like yeah. pure this stuff is not easy to talk about. And then yeah. with quantum involved, there's of course like the whole. <laughs> cliche Feynman code of nobody in quantum really knows what they're doing, what quantum is, right? They don't understand it. Yeah. For a good reason. Like that was actually what we were talking about with like the quantum theory before you joined. We'll talk about that more after, but yeah. Yeah. Well, one fun fact about the 10 martini problem is uh, the guy who came up with it. uh, uh, He said he'll give, he'll buy 10 martinis for someone who can solve the problem. Uh, Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. The, the, another fun fact is the uh, solution was given by a uh, Fields medalist from, uh, I think, like the mid no last idea. decade. Um, uh, I think somewhere around 2015 or 2012, uh, Artur Avila. And uh, he's the one who actually discovered the fractal implication for uh, the, the, the problem that was, you know, didn't, didn't seem to relate to fractals at all, which shows how deeply embedded fractals are in mathematics. Yes. Uh, again, I think this 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 canon should be covered in a separate podcast, just because you know, uh, like we don't want too many icebergs floating around here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree, and we'll do that. So for now, every anybody who's wondering what what the heck this thing is, just look at the show notes. You'll you'll get the idea. But um, okay, now if any if you two don't have any specific uh, like nukes and cranny details, oh, actually, let's before that, uh, do, do you want to talk about where the project is going? the future of it what are we trying uh, aspiring to essentially so right now we're basically developing the training these models to see whether we are um we are able to train them and they are able to predict rather uh, so what's next well uh we have mined a an actual fuck ton of data uh, i'm not <laughs> kidding nearly one terabyte of data uh, <laughs> that's just sitting on a drive somewhere um the next step is to actually do the machine learning uh, which we've already kind of kicked off. We have our general uh, uh, model architecture uh, that is derived by uh, Deep over here. And uh, we need to actually do some batch machine learning over uh, just tons of cross-sections of data because we have such a huge data set. Uh, I'll even say, if, if there's anyone listening who'd like to join, you know, just shoot, shoot us a message and we'd be happy yeah. to have you on the project. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, a, it's a completely open, so we're looking forward open to hear from different people. Yeah. It's open source and it's uh it's a really interesting problem for uh for machine learning in general. It's a very cool yeah. problem. Certainly. Now, if you don't if you any either of you don't have any specific thing to our project and these applications, I want to abstract uh, out and talk about fractals a little bit broadly. Do you have sure. anything to add at this point? Uh no, I'm good. Okay. No, so 
well, I, I asked you these uh, before, and it steps into more philosophical realm a little bit. But again, as we talked, it, uh, the fractals seem to be completely immer- uh, available, like existing in the background of the entire universe. If you zoom in in any specific part, you can see them. When you uh, zoom out, you can keep seeing them. Again, like galaxies, they're essentially these... Um, uh, so. In a sense, fractals themselves, but then even even if you zoom out further, you can see um, uh, super cl- super clusters, or rather uh, clusters of galaxies that again are self-similar, uh, fractal in a sense. So why does it? Why, in your opinions, does this fractal behavior exist? In it seems inherent, or maybe even fundamental in the universe, or maybe it's emergent. Uh, actually, let's talk about that. Uh, is yeah, it emergent? So- is it fundamental? Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I remember there was a picture floating on the internet of um, something like what you said, like a cluster of galaxies, and also uh, compared with a protein, a picture of a protein, which all, which had, you know, like proteins look all squiggly and weird and stuff. Right, yeah. Uh, and most of my friends, like, and there was, I think inevitably it was some relation to how, like, intelligent design and all that stuff was there, which is not the focus of what I'm trying to say. A lot of my <laughs> friends dismissed it as complete bullshit, but, you know, like, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with the uh, deep embedded nature of fractals in everything. Um, I think, well, since in mathematics, we're, we generally deal with a lot of spaces, right? Like, I mean, Hilbert space is an example of one. Um, there are spaces of fractals themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, spaces of fractals being in the complex plane, you can, you can actually create, uh, 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 like use iterative functions on every single point of the of the complex plane, and you end up with a, a unique fractal for each of those points. And uh, those points are known as uh, Julia sets. So each of those uh, those those fractals are called Julia sets. And what's really interesting is if you put those uh, this is a side note. If you arrange all those Julia sets uh, into different points, what emerges out of that is a Malbrot set, and that can we can add that in the show notes. That's just that's just a really wacky cool thing in mathematics. Um, but I think it's, uh, it goes to that. Like, I mean, there is, there's this debate in mathematics of whether mathematics model is, is just the best approximation of nature or, uh, on the, on one side of the coin and the other side of the coin is, well, mathematics is nature and we're just trying to understand nature better by understanding mathematics better. So it's, 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 I think it does come down to this, uh, this, this two-sided coin and this debate that's always going back and forth. Um, but either way, I think nature is just really well approximated by fractals. I think it's um, the, these like, um, who's to say, maybe we can even come up with some kind of uh, uh, super fine structure that we can use to approximate every single uh, curve that we ever see uh, to an infinite degree. Like right now we, we can use calculus and we can get there to, uh, to, to a similar degree, but not quite there, uh, yeah. which I'm sure we can explore in a, at a later conversation. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I think fractals might actually help us get there. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, as to the question of whether in your, I mean, I know it's purely pre- assumption, but do you think they seem to be more emergent or fundamental at this point? I think it's uh, it's emergent, like because uh, again, most of these things have to do with. Uh, I mean, it's always like I mean, even the definition of a fractal dimension is is. Uh, the number of self-similar items that are there within an item and then their magnification factor, right? So like yeah. the, you start with the most basic unit and then mm. 
the fractal emerges out of it, right? You have like you start with like this super tiny self-similar like seed, and then the uh, the the rest of the fractal emerges out of the seed by the the, the way you operate it, right? The way you magnify it and the way you arrange it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to make that clear, think of again a square and cutting up a square into four 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 pieces, and then you see a bigger square emerge out of that, right? Your unit is a square, so it's it's kind of like that. But yeah. yeah, you don't know, like as with most of these emergent phenomena, you don't know where one ends and the other begins, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. Uh, to, how about you, Deep? Do you have any thoughts on the, the matter? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Govin that it's fact of matter is we're, we're touching the deepest, one of the deepest questions about nature, which is, is math discovered or is it invented, right? Mm. So like, uh, so, but that being said, like I've always, uh, not always, like recently uh, concluded that... Um, going back to like the definition of superposition, I really like what it says about reality because when something's in a superposition of let's say two states, Mm -hmm. it's never saying that it's in either that state or the other state or both states or neither of the states. It's saying it's in a superposition, which is, which means that we can't physically say anything about its current state uh, in any logical manner that makes sense. But when you measure that superposition, you might get one or the other state depending on the probability and what kind of superposition it was. So, um, so you'll get different answers, varying answers every time you make a measurement. And I feel like that's what happens with this. Uh, that is what's happening with this um, question of the dualistic sort of divide we take with um, ascertaining whether the universe is mathematical or whether we yeah. invent it. Because it might not be either or, it might just be a superposition of the two. So sometimes um, fractal-like behavior we observe in the universe is truly just emergent. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's the other way around. Maybe. That's what I think. Okay, fair enough. Now, I want to throw out two other concepts that we're going to talk about in detail later, but I want your feedback, like a short feedback um, at this point. And uh, mentioning all of these mathematics being either uh, developed or like uh, discovered, um, invented or discovered. Now, so I'm not sure if this was Lee Smolin, but I believe it was that was talking about uh, possibly the laws of the physics and the laws of the universe being uh, being not constant, rather not fundamental and evolving. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I again, I, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm misquoting him for somebody else but uh, so what are your thoughts on that so i love that because uh, i i love that we're still thinking about that because it's important freaking question right that yeah. like okay i would like to know if the physics you know right outside of the hubble bubble completely changes right. that's definitely important to know so uh that being said um so i believe the term is um uh, isotropic and anisotropic right so like so when something is anisotropic, just for the listeners, um, what that means is that when you measure it from different uh, it, like physical angles or just different ways, it has different properties. So the measurement, um, the type of measurement you make affects the outcome. Uh, mm-hmm. And whereas with isotropic, no matter where you measure it um, or how you measure it, you will get the same result. So a physical example is, let's say like I take a... Uh, a sphere and it's a perfectly like cut you know diamond sphere um and if i wanted to measure like let's say the diffraction at a specific point on the sphere it's going to be the same uh angle wherever i go right so that makes that property diffraction in this case 
uh, an isotropic property uh, of that diamond. Whereas with, um, and so when you look at the universe, um, we're constantly asking, or like Lee Smolin and others, um, is the universe isotropic when you look far enough, or is it uh, anisotropic, where we have different physics when you measure it from a different place? And um, I think it's inevitably the latter. It, even if it's not like in our universe where we experience different laws of physics, it has to be the case, I think, that there are other laws of physics out there. Because like right. the fact that we exist means almost for sure that reality has existed before. And, and it does, like in other ways. But again, that's just a, another guess. Right, yeah, of course. Uh, how about you? What are your thoughts, Govin, on this? Uh, well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's kind of, this is regarding um, the invention versus discovery, right, of mathematics? To a degree, I mean, uh, so uh, if, if we tend to accept that the laws of the universe are not uh, fixed, evolving, or rather existing completely differently in a different universe, like now, will the same math explain both of them? Or rather, you have to... Uh, modify it so that maybe speaks to if you have to modify it or there's a different math this might speak to it being um, invented to explain something rather than discovered or you can say well that was different law so it's it's mathematics but they're the two different maths because they're two two different laws so in in that sense i want to i'm i'm thinking about it well Um, i think uh well for me the core of mathematics has always been logic and logical inference. Mm-hmm. Um, so if a different math had uh, a different conception of logical inference, or maybe didn't even have logic at all, I think it would really be inconceivable for me, almost literally. <laughs> I don't think I'd be able to conceive of a mathematics that's not, I mean, maybe you can think of it as uh, having different rules of uh, uh, like rules of truth and assigning truth assignments to, to statements. Mm-hmm. like uh or assumptions right because most uh most like i mean all models in mathematics are axiomatic you know you have set theory which has the set theory axioms probability theory has the probability mm-hmm. theory axioms and then you derive the theorems from all of them right uh, that that is kind of the the heart of mathematics in my opinion at least um uh, if if we if, if there is a different kind of mathematics I'm, I'm 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 not sure what would follow but that aside i think um what what the purpose of mathematics is, at least for the broad case of uh, most humans who just want to, you know, find out how the world works and manipulate it according to what we want to do. Um, I think uh, any form of mathematics would, would would serve that purpose, give some kind of objective script on, uh, the, or quasi-objective, as objective as possible, uh, script on how we can uh, re- reliably uh, understand and abstractly understand and manipulate how the world works okay all right that's fair now uh so i'm gonna throw a different question now if if the laws of physics uh, universe do in fact differ in different either different times or different realms or different universes whatever you want to call them uh would you think would you say either of you am throwing it out there the same mathematics that we have can construct similar i mean i'm not talking about details like what you said the Axiom, so we, maybe with a different set of axioms, but essentially with the same logic construct, okay. we can come up. We can uh, no, not not complete chaos. <laughs> exactly. Can we can we describe those set of rules 
with, but with the same basics of mathematics as we know it today? I, I know it's incomplete, but I'm just talking about philosophically speaking. Hmm. So let's look at the uh, idea of different infinites first, um, because okay. when we're All looking... All right, that's a good one. <laughs> so, so think about the multiverse for a second. And you know how there's different kinds of infinites, right? Like from zero to infinity and just the whole numbers and then all the integers and all the rationals and, and all that stuff. And the set keeps getting bigger and bigger, right? So think back to the multiverse. We don't know um, what kind of infinite uh, it is. We don't know how large that set of infinite multiverses might be. And we don't know how large the number of people, um, or we, we also obviously don't know the anthropics principle, but we also don't know the number of inhabitants or life forms that exist out there in the multiverse. And that matters because what if the infinity for the multiverse uh, is larger than the infinity of sentient beings out there in the multiverse? That means that you have leftover uh, multiverses, right, that aren't inhabited. Then in that case, if we're going to take physics as we approach it from the measurement problem uh, approach, then we have no way of saying that there even is a physics in those multiverses where there is no one to make a measurement. Um, so my answer is that we would need a different kind of math and different kind of physics to address the physics of other multiverses that don't follow our rules. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's good that we're we're at least someone is talking about these 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 questions, right? Like because it's uh, it's it just gets so hard to even talk about these because you you need to be at the highest level of abstraction at so many different fields to even. This is kind of an emergent field, like even true multiverses, right? Yeah, it totally is. Like we, we, I feel that this century and this millennia in general will be a millennia of probing the multiverse and empirically proving it and just going farther and farther, even trying to make like portals and ways to go, you know, travel to other multiverses. I think we will do that at some point, not in our lifetime for sure, but uh, eventually. Yeah. I mean, let's hope it's in our lifetime. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, dude, let's make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I hope fractals will get us there. Totally. Now, another thing that I want to throw at you, I said two things. I mean, this is, again, we're coming to the end of the show, so I want to basically make it very short, but we're going to talk about it in depth later on. Um, but that is the, I think I, I shared um, the book with you. I don't know if you have the author in front of you because I blank, I'm blanking on his name, but the, the book that he has is the case against reality. Oh, Donald Hoffman. Hoffman. Uh, so, so what, again, I, um, I didn't read the entire book yet, but uh, based on me hearing him talk and other people's talk about his work, um, now his point of view is that, okay, reality, as we come to define it, however you want to define it, it's not really, really the deepest of the realities that you can possibly think of. Um, and it's the it's evolutionary uh, it would so this is what he's saying it would be evolutionary against our interest to actually understand the reality as its purity uh, because then we couldn't function in the world as we do so for instance he gives the analogy of computers and let's say you're moving objects and, and you're on your desktop to different folders to recycle bin whatever and um, now, this is not literally what is happening at the low level of the computers, uh, but it's a good approximation for us to understand and, and use to uh, do our things in the computer. 
Now, what are your thoughts on that? Either of you can go first, Deep, maybe. Sure. So, um, first of all, like I really like the idea that he's taking the evolutionary approach of um, like, okay, maybe it's not even worth knowing the true nature of reality because maybe that's why we don't have like natural intuition for quantum mechanics, right? It doesn't make sense to us. It's literally, yeah. literally not logical uh, the the way that it behaves and its implications for sometimes. Um, so I wonder though, like, and is it, it depends, but I wonder if we can like train the next generation of let's say children to have a different intuition, right? And to have a better, deeper understanding of reality. Would Hoffman consider that as going against, um, what is in our evolutionary benefit? Right. So, so like, yeah. Right. I, I, so based on what I understand of him, I don't want to butcher his point of view, obviously, but this yeah. is just my uh, interpretation of what he's saying. And that is, well, maybe not in one generation. And it doesn't mean that we cannot develop tools that help us understand the nature of it. But that's not, uh, so that's not really natural to us. But, so we have to put a lot of work to actually dug deep. Uh, so he's, he's not uh, imposing that it's always like, it, like absolutely impossible and there's no way we ever can do this. That's not what he's saying. But he, he's saying maybe, maybe that's the case. But I'm more optimistic, and I think we can like develop tools like we have developed science to further understand the reality, like at least closer realities of a universe, rather than some um, further approximation of them, uh, and get keep getting closer and perhaps getting to the to the to the thing, whatever that is. But um, but I don't think he's just going to accept the training of a next generation as a, enough of a step. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, um, you you go then. What do you what do you think about this whole thing? The denying of of reality, in a sense. So so his book is the case against reality. In that, okay, like uh, actually, I don't know why he names that book this, as it as he did again because I didn't read the entire book. I mostly heard him talk about the book, so it's not a fair assessment. But essentially, so so do you think there is a complete like again going back to the analogy of the computer? So when you're moving icons on the fold two folders and from the folders that's way far from what is actually happening there's, no, there's a bunch of electrons moving around and there's not like you, you have no understanding of those electrons when you're moving into computers so do you think we're that far from it absolute reality if you will well i mean this is this is a question of uh well philosophy has been trying to address this specifically in metaphysics for like hundreds thousands of years right where we started out with uh like all our ancient uh, like rationalist philosophy from Aristotle. And then we end up with uh, empiricism. And then we have Kant who's like, hey, why, why not both? You know, uh, I don't want to go too deep in that, in that rabbit yeah. hole. But um, well, the fact of the matter, I think uh, a good philosopher to uh, use for this discussion is Charles Sanders Peirce. You know, uh, if you take, uh, if, if you take, you, you know, the blind spot in your eye, right? Yep. Like we got a yeah, spot yeah. where I think the optic nerve uh, passes through. Yeah. Um, so it seems like uh, there's like, I mean, when you put something there, it just doesn't show what that, what that is. You, you can't directly look at anything that's in there. But what, what happens is that your, your eye kind of fills up the gap with something else. Like, I mean, um, uh, the an experiment that Charles Sanders Pierce said is like, you take a little penny and then you, you look really, you put it on a, on a piece of paper and you look really close at that penny until it goes into your blind spot. 
your eye won't even look at the process the penny. It'll just, it'll fill up the gap with the paper that's around it. So, I mean, a lot of reality is just our cognition being projected onto it. Uh, but that isn't to say that we are, we're, you know, we're tripping on some, you know, acid reality <laughs> uh, completely. We, I think uh, most of what our body does is to just enhance our experience and make sure that we are always alive and aware of what's going on. Uh, I, I'm making an evolutionary argument, I guess, in this case. Yeah. Um, but to say that we're separated to such it's an extreme degree from the actual objective reality seems a bit of a stretch to me. Mm -hmm. hmm. Oh. Okay, cool. We, we discussed this definitely further uh, because again, it's a whole topic on its own. We can separate these. I just wanted to throw them out there because they're quite related in this, in this realm we were talking about. All of them can come together essentially. Yeah. Um, so thanks, guys. This was awesome. We are going to definitely deep, deep, uh, dig deep in all of these subjects that we talked about, 10 Martini problem and uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, these two that I recently introduced and basically bring everything together at some point. Um, if you have any final words, go for it. Otherwise, well, I think we can adjourn here. Well, yeah. I, I'll say that um, I'm very excited for the Fractal project and to see what kind of models we can come up with. and. Uh, uh, We'll be sure to keep you guys posted on what we make of it. Awesome. You deep. I just want to make one final comment. And also, yeah, I, I echo Govin's thoughts. I think this project is going to be super cool. It's going to reveal a lot of things about reality that we all care about. Um, but speaking of reality, my final thought was that we definitely need to get better with, and we'll talk about it more next time, but, um, so one of the best philosophers uh, of all time, and especially of the 20th century, he was also a logician. Uh, his name was Ludwig Wittgenstein. He uh, had a bunch of, he made a couple of breakthroughs in philosophy and logic. And one of the ones that he did in philosophy, like the general idea uh, came down to him showing and debunking the use of language and how we don't use it properly. And even when we do, it still isn't good enough um, in the way that we use it for what we are trying to approach and, and accomplish and tackle. So he like really emphasized the use of language. And when it comes to the idea of reality and objective reality and how far we are, we definitely need to agree on definitions better and have super precise, rigorous, you know, wide varying uh, definitions of reality and just super nuanced looks on what we mean when we say that. Couldn't agree more. That was actually well said and awesome. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, we'll yeah, definitely... Thanks for the awesome chat, by the way. Very engaging. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I always enjoy having a chat with you two. It's amazing. Either online or offline. It doesn't matter. It's amazing. Likewise. And I, <laughs> and I hope our listeners will enjoy. Again, we'll pick this up later with more depth. And until later episode, have a good evening.